0: Well, good morning everyone whether or not we come here this morning with uh, hearts and overflowing with joy or whether we come here this morning with with heavy hearts maybe we do come to adore Christ as our our focus as our hope we come to adore him for for who he is for what he has done and and what he promises uh, to do even this morning as this season is a time of of looking at a particular journey uh, that was very unique, Uh, will never be repeated again, this journey of of Christ coming from glory to the manger, returning back to glory. It's a little bit of a cliffhanger, and we're going to get there, but as we look here this morning at the Gospel of Luke, we'll, we'll spill over in a little bit to his his volume two, but we're going to look here this morning at the movement of Luke, uh, how he presents this gospel so that we would worship this Christ, our Lord, who, who came to humble himself and willingly die in our place in order to take his place of exaltation. This journey that we depict maybe in the nativity scenes, in the stories that we read, even in the gospel of Luke, as we come together as families reading this account again, we're usually only taking a, a, a look at one slice of the journey. And this morning, I hope to just walk us through from the manger to the throne, walk us through this, this journey that Luke presents to us. And if you have your Bible, it would be very helpful for you to open that to Luke chapter 1, and we're going to walk all the way through this book and be here until 3 p.m. maybe 2.30. And look at the, the overall picture that Luke gives us in this journey of Christ. Again, that we might worship Him as followers, that we may see this birth of Christ and then also the ascension of Christ, that it would give us confidence to declare His glory while we wait with anticipation, while we wait with expectation for the return of of the king. We're very familiar with the Christmas narrative, very familiar with many narratives of course throughout God's word, but we often forget to take the time and connect these narratives to what's happened before and what's going to happen ahead. We often forget to to take a look at these smaller narratives into the grand meta narrative, the grand overarching message of God's redemptive narrative, starting in creation, leading to fall, redemption, and then ending in new creation. It's very important for us to see small narratives into God's bigger narrative as we read through books of the Bible, I hope and pray we do that, read through books of the Bible, not just taking verses here and there with the danger of taking those verses out of context, but seeing in the larger context what is God doing and what is he about to do and Luke does that for us in a very grand way with his two volumes and we're going to talk about that but he frames this grand narrative as he he presents Jesus taking this this journey from the manger well really from glory from then the manger to the throne and so this morning this will be a little bit of our outline as we go through this just looking first of all Quickly at the purpose and function, that's why we're going to start in chapter 1, verse 1, looking at the purpose and function of Luke and his gospel, and then this, uh, discussing some, real quickly, some unique uh, features of this gospel, and then spending most of our time on the actual flow of Luke as he goes through this gospel, as we take this journey with Luke, stopping in some places and looking at some very important events, aspects of the, the person and work of Christ. So let's pray before we look here into Luke chapter 1. Father, I thank you that we can again come here this morning, and what a great privilege and honor to gather with your people to adore your Son. This Christmas season is often maybe described as a hurried one, a, a fast-paced season. And Lord, I I pray that you would help us to slow down here, but by taking this journey, which is a, a large chunk of the New Testament, looking at this book of Luke and his account. But Lord, may we slow down enough to see what you're doing, what you've done, and what you're still yet to do, what you've still yet to do, Lord, as we look at the person and work of Christ and his, his birth and also his anointing in his determination, and his journey, his journey to go to Jerusalem, which then, of course, as Luke closes this out of his journey back to glory in his exalted state through the ascension. So Father, I pray that you would help us to, to see Christ here this morning, to behold him, that you would transform our hearts. Do that by the power of your word, through your spirit, we pray in Christ's name. Amen. So let's uh, look here at Luke chapter 1. Luke 1, verse 1. We're going to see Luke's purpose here, his purpose and his function, which sometimes New Testament writers will give us that up front, sometimes they won't, but Luke clearly does this here in verse 1. Inasmuch as many have undertaken to compile an account of the things that have been fulfilled among us just as those who from the beginning were eyewitnesses and servants of the of the word handed them down to us it seemed fitting for me for luke as well having investigated everything carefully from the beginning to write it out for you in orderly sequence most excellent theophilus so that you may know the certainty about the things that you have been taught. Luke clearly is either writing to one particular person or through this person to the church. This is, of course, a little bit later on, but first early church um, in probably mid-60s that Luke is writing this, and he, he writes to Theophilus. There's lots of speculation who was this Theophilus. Is this his title? Is it his name? Is he already a follower of Christ? Is he not yet a follower of Christ? Is he maybe, in fact, even a Roman official? His name simply means friend of God or lover of God. And for Luke, this could represent someone who is representative of the whole church as a way to write to those who are following Christ. But he clearly gives this purpose to allow Theophilus, us as well, to know the certainty of the things that he's already been taught. We might say to ground him in the truth, to take him deeper into the truths of who Christ is, the person of Christ, and what Christ has accomplished, the work of Christ. And we would hope that that marks each one of us. We we cannot be content with where we are now. We, We can't be content with knowing just surface-level truths, we've got to go deeper so that we have certainty and we know what it is that we believe. Grounded in truths. And and Luke writes to to help us to be more certain about the person and work of Christ. It even could be that Theophilus, if this is a friend of Luke, follower maybe of Christ, maybe a new convert, that he is struggling to connect truths that he is seeing the tensions of of the first century, of the the early church, and and saying there's a lot of hostility. And it started with this guy that we say we're following. Is it worth it? Do I, as a Gentile, as a Greek, do I belong? So could it be that maybe he writes so that he is assured, reassured of the person and work of Christ, that he's reassured of what God's plan is, because the future sure looks bleak. Could it be that he's writing to give him assurance of what a disciple is called to be and how a disciple is to participate in the community, in the body, and the task of identifying and proclaiming this Jesus because there's hostility. He could be shoring these things up for Theophilus. And wow, how similar this would be then to us even similar now. Whatever age you are in here, we are going to face those times of opposition, those times of doubt, those times and questions of asking, is this actually worth it? How do I belong in this body? What is God doing through all of this mess that I live in? And then there's Luke's method. So he clearly lays out his purpose, but, but then his method, very orderly account. And we know this about Luke, we've heard this about Luke, the doctor, right? He's very particular, uses very high Greek structure, his sentences, but he is undertaken to write this orderly account. This is his endeavor to compile or to record, to set down in permanent form an account of all that has already been fulfilled. And he connects this to the purpose of giving clarity, giving confidence, giving reassurance to Theophilus. In verse 3, in fact, he takes this even further. He says, I have investigated everything carefully. I have followed along meticulously in putting this account in order with sources, with eyewitnesses, with traditions, with ministers of the word, he says, speaking of the apostles themselves, to set in order, to endeavor to narrate the person and work of Christ in this authoritative, logical, factual order. Of course, carried along by the Holy Spirit. And Luke stresses in these opening verses, he stresses his accuracy, his carefulness to provide this clarity and confidence and certainty for the church. Why? That we would know Christ, that we would worship Christ, that we would declare Christ, Christ, that we might not waver or cave in the midst of trial, in the midst of hardship, suffering, or even persecution. Why would this be important? Now, as a season of Christmas, I think you'd agree, you're probably hearing less and less, Merry Christmas. It's being pushed out, it has been, being pushed out, Christ taken out of Christmas, message is lost with all the tinsel and all the glitter. Of course, this falls in line with the culture in large, removing God, pushing out anything Christian, opposition growing, hostility growing, as the culture is gaining, in fact, in areas that we would have never anticipated, reaching that point of normalizing, celebrating, parading sin. This is the culture we live in, so we need clarity, we need confidence, we need to be reassured to have certainty of who is this Christ that we follow. What has he done? What has he accomplished? Luke's message, very important for us to see this holistically. Small narrative slices, of course, but not about how do we live like Jesus. Not about, oh, what a great example he is of, of walking righteously. I can't follow in those footsteps the way he walked it. His journey was very unique from my journey. Because he came from glory in humility through this birth, went to the cross to die. Not as an example, but as an atonement for sin. To rescue us, to reconcile us to the Father. So all these narratives that we typically read through the Gospels, we need to see them in the overarching overarching message of God's redemptive plan. Some unique features, I'll just mention a few. Uh, Luke's gospel is the longest of the gospels, quite distinct from Matthew and Mark in many ways, different parables, more parables, different miracles, more miracles, follows in general with Mark's order of things, very chronological, but he still does sometimes use certain events in, in very intentional ways uh, to bring out his, his emphasis but it's also the only gospel with a uh a sequel. There's a part 2 to Luke's gospel. And if you're reading Luke, uh you you then at the end chapter 24 you come to then John 1 and you're thinking what well, that's not that's not part 2 is it? You've got to jump a book and get into Acts and see how Luke connects these two strongly. We're going to talk about that in a bit. Another very unique feature of Luke is The sense of destiny that he puts on Christ. Prominent use of a verb, very simple, very small verb in Greek, "de." It simply means it must, it is necessary, it is fitting for this to happen. He uses it over and over, uses it with great prominence. Certain things must happen. Jesus had to be in his father's house. He must preach the good news of the kingdom. He must suffer he must finish the way that was appointed to him. It is necessary for the Son of Man to be betrayed, crucified, necessary to suffer first before entering glory. Over and over, Luke shows this sense of destiny with this prominent use of a very simple verb. It must happen this way. It is necessary that these things happen. It is fitting to what? God's redemptive purpose. And then there's a very unique feature that we'll get to and spend a bit of time here, and I've already mentioned the word, but Luke has a very strong motif of journey. The journey of Christ, this may be one of the most distinct features, really from the beginning of the end, if we think about the overall gospel of Luke and then connecting it to Acts, but specifically, technically, if you were to look at chapters 10 or, or chapter 9 and on, you see 10 chapters of the 24 are dedicated to Jesus' journey to Jerusalem. He's in Galilee, he's in the north, ministering, that's part of his ministry, but then there's a stark different or a stark contrast to when he sets his face to Jerusalem. Jesus' willing and firm intention is dominated by Luke's gospel. He never swerves from that determination to fulfill all prophecy, and to complete his work on the cross in Jerusalem. So as we move into looking at this flow of Luke's gospel, manger to the throne, for the most part, Luke is very chronological, but like others I said, he he does order certain things for his emphasis. And when we read the gospels, we should always be asking, why did he choose this Narrative. Why did he place it here? Uh, Why now? Why this order? Why this arrangement? What happens before? What happens after? How is each phase of Jesus' life and ministry connected to that unfolding of God's redemptive plan? So the outline that we're going to take a look at here is in four parts. Some have said, maybe we could take an outline of uh, Jesus uh, says in Luke 19, that the Son of Man came to seek and to save the lost. Three verbs, he came to seek and to save. And we could see that outline in Luke's gospel. In the beginning chapters, he came. His birth, his anointment, the anointing, the authenticity that he's given from the Father. And then as it moves from chapter 4 all the way to 21, he's seeking. This is his miracles, his teaching. He's in Galilee, but then he takes that turn, of course, to Jerusalem. And then the, the gospels end with him saving his cross, uh, work, his death, his resurrection. So you could see how the Son of Man came, beginning of the, of the gospel, to seek in the middle and in the end to save. But we're going to walk through this a little bit differently A little closer to uh, the text, these main sections that that move through this intentional direction, the coming of the Son of Man, the ministry of the Son of Man, the journey, and then the sacrifice and uh, exaltation of the Son of Man as we walk through. So first of all, the coming of the Son of Man. This is in the very beginning, and, and if we could put ourselves in this context a little bit uh, of the beginning of Luke, really, we have to think back to the Old Testament. <clears throat> we have to put ourselves in this this context, this context of longing, of prediction, of anticipation uh, of God coming as a King to dwell with His people. The psalter longs for aches, in fact, for the coming of God through lament, heavy emphasis of lament through majority of the Psalms are lament Psalms. The prophets long, they anticipate, they predict the coming of God, the the coming of the Messiah. And certainly the whole life of Israel as we look at the Old Testament, there's this sense of anticipation. When is he going to come and be our king? Because we're failing over and over and over. And in fact, that was their, their call to faith, was to look forward, to put their faith in this coming Messiah. God is coming. When? The anticipation. The Old Testament, by the time we get through it, it's almost dripping with it, with this waiting, this aching, when is God going to come? And the gospel writers, every one of them reach back. And they pull that theme forward and they connect it and they say, he has come. God has come from glory, taking on this human nature, fully God, fully man, but a king who came to die. And that's where all the anticipation, all the, ante- all the expectation just gets thrown for a loop. Because that's not at all what they were expecting. They're expecting this physical king brought in through royalty to rule now physically for israel particularly but the gospel writers they reach back they grab that theme and they say he has come but this is no mere human king because no mere human king can accomplish the work of redemption and the establishment of an eternal kingdom No human king can do that work. So God himself comes through Christ. So chapter 1, if you look at Luke chapter 1, you see some back and forth between John the Baptist and Jesus. The the births foretold, uh, in fact, then both being born, their ministries, it kind of goes back and forth in these beginning chapters. Uh, John's birth is a miracle, but Jesus' is a unique, never-before-done miracle. John is great. Jesus is greater. John is baptizing many, many people. But when Jesus is baptized, this one person is baptized, the heavens open up. You see what Luke is doing? He's setting up this back and forth, back and forth to again show right up front, this Jesus is different. And after the announcements of John and Jesus' birth, uh, Luke, of course, gives us these very detailed events of the birth of Christ and the virgin birth surrounding, of course, very humble circumstances. Again, unexpected arrival to say the least. Uh, born not to a king but a carpenter. Uh, born not in robes but rags and claws. Uh, born not into gold and riches, but laid in hay in a manger born not to this great renown and and procession, but obscurity, known to first of all these dirty shepherds. He doesn't come in splendor, but in a lowly place, unfit for any earthly king. But he's also not born to live or conquer Rome, but to suffer and die for the sins of the world. So very familiar text in chapter 1, Verse 26, I just want to pull out something again that Luke is doing here as he reaches back into time, as he reaches back into the Old Testament. In the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent from God to a city of Galilee named Nazareth to a virgin betrothed to a man whose name was Joseph of the house of David. And the virgin's name was Mary. And he came to her and said, greetings, O favored one, the Lord is with you. But she was greatly troubled at the saying and tried to discern what sort of greeting this might be. And the angel said to her, do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. Favored, graced one. God has put his grace on this humble one, Mary. But we need to learn to see some thematic rhythms, some repeated themes, repeated subplots, And what Luke here and the other gospel writers, Luke does this in more detail, he reaches back to women who can't have children until God intervenes. This is a theme all through the Old Testament. And I think very intentional in God's redemptive plan, and his redemptive narrative that starts in Genesis, ends in Revelation. We have to see these, these connections that... There were women in the Old Testament who couldn't have children until God intervened. And that child who was conceived in those instances played a major role in God's redemptive plan. We don't certainly have the time to go back and look at all these, but Sarah, Rebecca, Samson's parents, Hannah. All the way up until just before Mary here is, of course, John's mother, Elizabeth. And the culmination is in this Mary, who wasn't even trying to conceive. All the others were trying. All the others were crying out for a son. Mary wasn't even trying to conceive and physically unable to conceive as a virgin. Not like the other women in the Old Testament, as we see this theme running through God's redemptive narrative. The others were either too old, too advanced in years. There were other reasons. But Mary here at conception is, also, uh, is a virgin and then also at birth is a virgin. At Matthew one twenty five. Joseph knew Mary not until she had given birth. This is very unique. And it sets it apart as the, the culmination of this theme that runs from the Old Testament, from the book of Genesis, right here to the Gospels. Bringing this focus to what God is doing through the birth of his son. God steps in. God steps in as himself by the power of the Holy Spirit in the birth of all births unlike any other. He enters into our cursed land without sin, without any sin nature passed down from Joseph. He enters into our pain, our distress, our misery, our depravity to take the penalty of those who deserve the Father's wrath, to die in our place, to to buy us, to purchase us, to renew us, to forgive us, to justify us, to sanctify us, and bring us to the Father, the birth of all births. Christ takes on flesh so that he can bring us new, new life, new birth. So just like all the other barren women... That we see in this thread from genesis god intervenes and mary says properly how can this be in verse 35 very interesting she gets these words that the holy spirit will come upon you power of the most high will overshadow you what a pattern that is again all through the old testament god will come upon you power from the most high will overshadow you a promise of divine empowerment luke grabbing this of course from the old testament i believe he carries it right into the book of acts in volume two overshadowing he i believe alludes probably to the cloud of glory upon the tabernacle where where God is is coming to tabernacle uh, with his people in the Old Testament and now he's coming to tabernacle he takes over he overshadows Mary in this conception so that through this birth he can tabernacle among us dwell with us with this infinite power to rescue us there's so much mystery surrounding the birth the conception A great quote from Donald McLeod from his book, The Person of Christ. The virgin birth is posted on on guard at the door of the mystery of Christmas. And none of us must think of hurrying past it. It stands on the threshold of the New Testament, blatantly supernatural, defying our rationalism, informing us that all that follows belongs to the same order as it itself. And if we find it offensive, there is no point in proceeding any further. This beginning, the the amazing, uh, rational, defying, divine enablement of God and power of God will carry forward. This is the pattern that we'll see all the way through the Gospels, through Luke, and I believe into the book of Acts. So yes, we know that this was... This birth was to fulfill prophecy. Yes, we know that this divine act was to bring Christ into a broken world. God tabernacling with us without sin nature, passed through Joseph, fully God, adding on the nature of human nature. It's an addition. It's not a subtraction of his glory. It's an addition. He didn't stop becoming God. He's fully God, fully man. But how else is it significant I'm going to present just three different things. First of all, it highlights the supernatural work of Christ at his birth, but also at the cross. Jesus' authenticity was attested to by supernatural working of his Father at birth and also at his resurrection, at his ascension. The the entry and the exit miracles in Luke carry the same message. This is God's divine work of grace, and it can't be done any other way. This is God's divine work, and it can't be done any other way. So Jesus is no mere man being born. He's the inaugurator of a new creation by the Spirit, the glory of God, coming to tabernacle with us, who will accomplish God's will, fulfill that purpose, that task, to be the only mediator between man and God as the god man secondly it demonstrates that humanity needs redeeming that we cannot bring about ourselves we can't produce a redeemer we can't produce a mediator a savior jesus alone is qualified and this virgin conception and birth proves it and thirdly god's initiative is on display certainly through this virgin birth mary was not asked she was chosen She was told the power of God overshadowed her by grace. God breaks in with grace. God's acts of mercy and grace to provide, to save, to rescue, even when we're blind that we need rescuing or saving. He breaks in. So following the the birth of Christ from chapters 2 and 3, Uh, Luke is going to show several accounts of the affirmation, the anointing of Christ, the qualification of Jesus. He's praised by a a priest, of course by Mary, this humble virgin, by a prophet and a prophetess in in the temple. But then there's the baptism event where the, the, the heavens open up, the Holy Spirit descends, and this is all pointing to uh, the anointing of the Father on the Son. And, and then Luke is going to do something very, very interesting as he gets into chapter 3. Uh, I can't spend much time on this. but We did a couple of weeks on this, I think, in ABF, as we're really looking at meta-na- meta-narrative, the grand narrative. How do we connect all these dots? But in Luke 3.23, he says, Jesus, when he began his ministry, was about 30 years old. And then he goes into a long List of names that most of us do not know. It's the genealogy of Christ. Why here? Why now? That should be in the beginning, right? He goes on this rabbit trail, a very intentional rabbit trail to make a connection between the genealogy and then what's coming next. That is the temptation of Christ In the wilderness, one more uh, authenticity of Christ before we move on into his ministry. And and what he does is he ends this genealogy, not like Matthew does, where it goes all the way back to Joseph, Abraham, David. Luke goes back even further. He in fact goes backwards from Joseph to David, but he goes all the way in verse thirty-eight back to Adam, where it says the son of Adam. Finally, the end of this genealogy, the son of Adam. The Son of God, I believe what Luke is doing is setting up this genealogy to play a role to take us into this next step of christ 's temptation, which calls back again Luke is going back into the the Old Testament, calling back this strong connection to the wilderness experience of Israel who failed in the wilderness and also back to the first Adam, presenting here. Christ as the second Adam, who had passed the test that Adam failed, Israel failed, he will pass the test in the wilderness in his submission and his obedience to the Father, even so much obedience to the point of death on the cross. So, Luke in this section is demonstrating that Jesus is the Son of God coming as fully man. He's the uniquely qualified anointed one who alone can accomplish God's plan in redemption. So his, his coming, and then we won't spend much time on the second section here, the ministry of the Son of Man. This is a change of venue. Very quickly, just the, these opening chapters are God coming to the nation in a, in a way, coming to Israel. And here in chapter four through chapter nine, He goes to Galilee in the north. He remains there. Luke gives six chapters to this. This is the miracles of Christ calling the disciples. He's teaching, all the while clarifying his divine identity. And, of course, connecting it back in several places to the Old Testament, the prophecies that speak of not just his birth and reign, but also his ministry in, particularly in Galilee. Isaiah does that in chapter 9. We won't take the time to go there, but in chapter 9, verses 1 and 2, leading up to that prophecy that we all love at this time of year, but he actually says that he, this Christ is going to be uh, a light to the Gentiles in Galilee. And, and Luke demonstrates this through his words, his miracles, his activities, that this is the long-awaited son of King David. This is the Messiah, And through these chapters, Luke again is demonstrating that Christ has full authority and power who came as the true Messiah and King and who will release and rescue prisoners and establish an eternal kingdom. And then there's a very, very significant turning point in in chapter 9. And that's going to bring us into this next section of the journey that is so distinct to the gospel of Luke the journey from 951 through 1927, the journey of the Son of Man with this uh, distinct verse that really has a a direct break from his ministry in Galilee in verse 51. Jesus is going to move from Galilee and then Luke's order here is logical, it's chronological, but it's also geographical because he's going to say now when the days came near for him, 951, if you're there, we're just walking through these Chapters. This is one of the places we're stopping at. 951. When the days came near for him to be taken up, Christ, he set his face to go to Jerusalem. Jesus knew the timetable. He knew it was time to start this journey to Jerusalem. He set his face. This is used over and over in the Old Testament, particularly with the prophets. Same context. They're facing opposition, but they're marked with determination. And Christ here, his face is determined. It's set toward Jerusalem. And Luke, from this point on, is really a narrative acting like a travelogue of, of his journey to the cross. Interesting here how it says, uh, he turns his gaze to Jerusalem. And then it says, when the days drew near for him to be taken up. Um, different commentators have different ideas of what that verb is taken up what's it actually referencing to Uh, certainly it, it could mean logically his death taken up to the cross it's only used here in the gospels this one verb there's some other verbs that are very much related to this but luke i think clearly is directing this to not just the cross not to his death but to his ascension to his exaltation again luke has a second volume And we have to read Luke with Acts, because there are certain things that happen in Luke that you don't understand it until you get into Acts, because he carries it forward. And this is one of those times, three different places, Acts 1, this is again, at the ascension, when he was, what, taken up. Related verb, very close, but it's talking about his ascension. He does this again in verse 11 of chapter 1. Why do you stand looking into heaven? The angel says, this Jesus who was taken up from you into heaven. He's not talking about the cross, not talking about his death, but speaking of his exaltation. Uh, Peter's sermon a little bit later on in in chapter 1 again, verse 22, he mentions Jesus who is with them physically until, this is what verse 22 says, the baptism of John to the day he was taken up from us. Another reference to his ascension, his exaltation. So he turns his face to go to Jerusalem because he knew the days were coming for, yes, his death on the cross, but also through suffering, through this death and resurrection, that he would be exalted as the only uniquely qualified, fully God, fully man. Who could go to that cross, die, be buried, raise again, rise, be, be raised again, and then be exalted and brought back to the throne? He's the only one qualified for this. So this journey ahead is pointing to the cross, but it's also pointing to his ascension. And of course, Jerusalem was the city of God's king, and thus it would be the place where the Messiah would go to receive his, his royal welcome right? The temporary triumph as we get to chapter 19. And we know that soon after that, it would be that he would be going because he knows that he must drink a certain cup. He would soon take our sin upon himself and pay the penalty that we deserve as God's wrath poured into that cup that he alone again is qualified to drink. Nobody else is qualified to do that. Fully God, fully man. Jesus is not just a moral example of look how he loves others. He sacrifices himself. He even goes so far to die. No, his birth was unlike any other birth and his death is unlike any other death because he goes to offer himself up as a spotless, acceptable sacrifice. This is the most important journey in the history of the world. And it flows out of the most unexpected journey in the history of creation. Glory to the incarnation, God comes as man. There's no turning back for Jesus. He is going to go up to the city, up to the temple, up to the cross, so that he can go up to the throne. And along the way, he gives us, Luke, through the words of Christ, gives us glimpses of what, again, must happen, what is necessary to happen He's going to mention that several times in, in chapter 9 and chapter 18 that where, where Christ comes to the disciples and says, let these words sink into your ears for the Son of Man is going to be delivered into the ha- hands of men. For He will be handed over and He will be mocked and mistreated and spit upon. But after they have scourged Him, they will kill Him. And on the third day He will rise again. Jesus must suffer And he comes to fulfill again what Adam failed, what Israel could not obtain, what we fall short of, perfect obedience and righteousness to the law as the Son of God, the perfect mediator, the perfect and acceptable sacrifice. So Luke is demonstrating possibly stronger than any other gospel writer in his construction uh, of this journey, Jesus' willing determination to complete his mission of going to the cross to seek and save the lost. As we move into this last section here, this is chapter 19 on, uh, really to the end of, of Luke here, the sacrifice and the exaltation. Uh, Jesus now enters Jerusalem, you know, the triumphal entry is temporary, uh, considerable space like the other gospel writers is given to this last week. Uh, the journey started by coming from glory, The incarnation, the virgin birth, the coming of God to to dwell with us, to tabernacle with us. And and of course, Luke is going to follow that same pattern that the other gospel writers, the plot uh, to to arrest Jesus, to kill him, the the Last Supper, the betrayal, the actual arrest, the the trial, all leading, of course, to the crucifixion of Christ, the death on the cross, his burial. Uh, But as is the case, Luke has some very unique narrative that he'll add to his gospel A unique testimony in the post-resurrection so if you turn to chapter 24 luke again includes what no other gospel included and that is his ascension why does he do that why don't the other gospel writers do it? it's very interesting how luke includes this and then how he will carry this forward in volume two But as we get to Luke 24, verses 50 through 53, and he led them out as far as Bethany and lifted up his hands. He blessed them. While he blessed them, he parted from them and was carried up into heaven. And they worshiped him and returned to Jerusalem with great joy and were continually in the temple blessing God. Luke is demonstrating that this majestic Jesus who came from glory who stooped down to the lowest point, not in the manger, certainly the cross, he accomplished his work of redemption to be highly exalted in all his glory. So circle back to this idea of Luke, volume 1, volume 2. The journey isn't finished, okay? Jesus came from glory, took on human nature. As Messiah, Luke provides us with this affirmation, deity, fully God, fully man, Only uniquely qualified one to come and pay the ransom to be offered up as his sacrifice. He is spotless so that he could be despised and forsaken by men. He is spotless and blameless so that he would become this man of sorrows, acquainted with grief, so that he would bore our sin and grief, carry our sorrows, so that he would be pierced through for our transgressions. Jesus is not simply a man who comes to die as a a great moral example. He is crushed for our iniquities by the Father. In fact, if we go back to the suffering servant of Isaiah, the Lord is pleased to crush him, to put him to grief, to render him as a guilt offering, so that by his blood he can bring us to Christ by absorbing that wrath that was meant for us. So this journey from glory to heaven to the humble manger, to Galilee, to Jerusalem, very pointedly to Jerusalem, to go to the cross, to the grave, to then be raised again and exalted now, manger to the throne. The journey seems like it would just end here. They go back, they they worship, they go back to Jerusalem, praising him. But Luke doesn't stop there, does he? He writes another book. He writes part two, the journey isn't done, he carries this forward into Acts to show the power of the risen Christ through the church, through the apostles, through his disciples. And how does he start Acts? With the ascension. It's like a hinge to his volume one and volume two. He ends with the ascension, Acts one, he begins with the ascension drawing a strong connection that this journey is continuing. And and Luke carries this forward as we even get into Acts chapter 2. We we know that even in the midst of persecution, opposition, being thrown in jail, they, they are devoting themselves to what? To the apostles' teaching and to fellowship and the breaking of bread and to prayer by the time we get into act 17 it's actually um, the, the gentiles that are coming against them and saying these men have turned the world upside down they don't give themselves that that title but act 17 they are given that title uh, not by starting trouble not by stirring up trouble not not through social change but by faithfully following christ being devoted to the apostles teaching to fellowship, to the breaking of bread, to remembering the work of Christ and to prayer. These first century followers also could not remain silent. They declared Christ. They declared this Jesus who came to rescue them, to to buy them, to purchase them, to die for them, to forgive them. They spoke with great boldness, certain of who Christ was. What he did... what he promises to do. Just like Paul, they were not ashamed because they knew that this gospel was the power of God unto salvation to those who are believing. Not just for converts, the power of God, the gospel, the power of God. Not just for converts, but unto salvation, which is always a broad term. Not just talking about regeneration, not talking about conversion. It's a broad term. There's a beginning, there's a middle, and an end but the power to initiate, sustain, and complete. These first followers, they, they loved fearlessly, and they remained faithful and steadfast no matter what trouble came against. Luke's account is to give us certainty, O oh, Theophilus, that you would know for certain those things that you were already taught about the person and work of, of Christ to show the journey from glory to the incarnation of becoming coming and dwelling among men to his death and resurrection, to his exaltation. And this journey isn't done yet. Because Luke ends Acts volume two with, with Paul actively preaching and the church actively waiting because he's coming again. The journey is still not done. He's coming back. This gospel, even Acts, as we put those two things together, Luke's both for for us as, as families here, as the body of Christ, as we celebrate Christmas, may we know with certainty that Christ came fully God to tabernacle among us. As fully man, because he's the only one qualified to be our redeemer, to be the mediator between man and God, to be our high priest. He's the only one. qualified. May we know that for certain this Christmas season. May we know that His conception, His birth are as supernatural as His death and resurrection. His completed work of reconciling us to the Father and then His exaltation. It's as supernatural as His birth, His conception. He came from glory, he died a death of humility, and was risen to be taken back to glory, but the journey is not done. May we know with certainty that he is coming back. Our great and high king is going to return for his bride. May we also know that this exalted Christ is the one that we worship, the one that we adore, the one that we serve through his power, through his authority, as we devote ourselves to his word, to fellowship in this body, remembering his finished work and to prayer. And with this certainty that we behold Christ as a church, as we live, as we love, as we serve, as we declare, sustained by our gaze to this Christ, studying the depths of his glory. And Luke acts has a heavy emphasis on the glory of Christ, holding forth, it would seem, to the church, this glory of our Redeemer. He is uniquely qualified to be that Redeemer, that mediator. This is what we need, just like Theophilus, to be sure, to have certainty of the gospel, of the reason for the gospel, our sin, our inability to come, and the grace of God that breaks in to our life and, and opens our darkened eyes and our hardened hearts, and that Jesus is worth following, adoring, worshiping. Hold fast, O Theophilus, by beholding Christ by gazing on him no matter the consequences. He came to go to the cross to seek and save the lost. He, he died to atone for my sin, your sin. And he's risen, conquered the power of sin and death, and he was taken up, exalted as the Son of God, fully God, fully man, and he is coming again. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this glorious season that we can celebrate the glory of Christ. It's really a season that should be in our hearts all the time as you are actively showing us and putting yourself on display over and over of who you are, what you've done, your power, your greatness, your mercy, and your grace. You have graced us. Over and over you show us mercy. And there's no other way. There's no other Savior, There is no other Redeemer, Mediator, no other hope in anybody else or in anything else but Christ alone. Father, as you work through this season, whether again we, we've come with hearts full of joy and happiness or heavy, heavy hearts, Lord, do your work of grace in us to bring us to Christ, to behold him, so that you would be glorified as we come to you over and over. You are worth it, and Lord, I thank you for this church, your body. You've purchased us, and you are a treasure. Help us to declare that treasure in Christ through the gospel. In Jesus' name, amen. Would you please stand and join us? We're going to close our service.